As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a few verses from Psalm 9. Psalm 9, reading at verse 7. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in the time of troubles. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Father, we do seek you this morning. We're so thankful that you are there to be found, that you hear the voice of your people when we cry unto you, because day by day we know that we are in need of your strength and your deliverance. Even as we're looking at this psalm in the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel, a psalm of deliverance, O Lord, where we see that David cried out to you and you heard his prayer and you strengthened him and you empowered him. You delivered him and you did all the things that he prayed that you might do for the sake of your great name. And so, Father, we come to you today imploring that you will be our strength and our help, our fortress, our shield, our high tower. And, Father, that you will be with us this morning in our study of your word, that you will bless the word as it is proclaimed in the service and in other classes this morning. Lord, we just pray you'll give us faith as we commit ourselves to you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you'll turn back to 2 Samuel, chapter 22. I'd like to, again, uh, before we proceed further in our study this morning, read again the first seven verses and just go over that briefly for a moment. Chapter 22 of 2 Samuel, beginning at verse 1. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, and the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple he heard my cry, and my cry for help came into his ears. Before we look at the next passage, let me just <clears throat> reiterate briefly. Uh, two weeks ago, we began looking at this particular psalm. And what you find is that it's virtually word for word the same as Psalm 18. And so, you know, what appears to be is that not only do you have Psalm 18 as part of the songbook of Israel, psalm means song, and so it was placed there, but you also find it here in its historical context. It's been placed by the writer of 2 Samuel in the place which is fitting relative to either when David wrote it or why David wrote it. It comes in the 22nd chapter, it comes right after the description of the 
a great coup, attempted coup by Absalom and, and the great tragedy that came upon the land of Israel as a result of that, which hardly had they recovered from that before Sheba led another revolt. And so David, you, what we would say in our modern terminology is David twice dodged a bullet, you know, kind of idea here. Although David didn't do it, God was his deliverer. And so you have these, these coups. And then after this chapter, uh, you have the 23rd chapter, which, although it begins with a short psalm as well, has the roster of David's mighty men. So here we have this psalm of deliverance, deliverance, sandwiched between the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, the threats to life, that, that David went through, and then on the other hand, the list of these heroes, these champions of David's force, and in it all, David is, is saying that God has delivered me, and even though I have these mighty men, it is God who is my deliverer. He's given full credit to God for the victories that he is experience, has experienced. He clearly understood that this was true, and he wrote this psalm to exalt the Lord. I think this is one of the things I like most about the Psalms is that even though there are imprecatory Psalms, you know, where David says, kill him, Lord, wipe him out. Uh, and uh, there are Psalms of pleading and so forth. So many of the Psalms are Psalms of exaltation. They exalt God, which I think helps us to understand how our hymn hymnody ought to be, our, how our worship songs ought to be. They ought to be primarily psalms, uh, songs of exaltation, uh, not primarily psalms of gimme this and songs of gimme that, you know, kind of deal. And uh, so we have that, that example. In these first seven verses that I just read, we see discussed several metaphors or mentioned several metaphors concerning God. God is compared to a fortress. God is compared to a rock. God is compared to a shield. Remember we talked about it was the, 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 the small shield that the warrior carried into battle. Only most of them would carry it on their left arm, of course, if they're right-handed. The Benjamites would carry it on their right side. For some reason, they seem to be mostly left-handed to, to ward off the fiery darts of the evil one, as it were. And, and then the horn, uh, the horn being uh, an offensive weapon. And we read from the first verses of the 8th chapter of Daniel uh, about the horns uh, of the great ram of Medo-Persia and then the, the greater horn of, of the king of Greece or Alexander the Great as he came across and destroyed everything uh, that was uh, before him. So God is not only the provider of defensive shields for us, fortresses in which we can hide, but he also gives us, he is also an offensive weapon in verse 4 of this particular passage, we have sort of the key verse of this whole section where he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You know, when I, I, I see this picture, which probably many of you saw on television, this, this made up little scene where this guy who is thought to be Saddam Hussein is, is walking out there and, and all these men are, you know, yay, 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 whatever they're saying there. They might be blaspheming for all I know. We don't hear their voices, but, you know, they're shaking their arm and he's up there smiling and all this kind of stuff. And you think, is he worthy to be praised? No, he's not worthy to be praised. 
there is no human being who is worthy to be praised. You see this, this mass of people who are just fainting over some rock star, you know, or, or, or people who are mauling some basketball hero, and you think none of them is worthy to be praised. They're fallen men. They're, they're individuals who are filled with selfishness and self-exaltation, and only God is worthy to be praised. And so this, this verse kind of stands out because David calls upon the Lord because he is worthy. He is worthy to be praised. And as we read in, in Revelation, the lamb that was slain is worthy. He is worthy uh, for his position of power and worthy of praise. And in the praise, we're saved, we're delivered. We finished our study last uh, time, two weeks ago, in, in verses 5 to 7 of this particular passage where we, we read of what sounds like hopelessness, where David said, For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Sheol is opening up its, its maw and reaching out for me, kind of the idea that David is, um, was facing here. We, we all face the constant threat of physical and spiritual death. Now, those of us who are born again and we're living according to the Word of God, we know that spiritual death is not something we will ever experience because the second death is, is only for those that never bowed the knee to Christ in this life and uh, turned to Him. But physical death does uh, hang over uh, each of our heads, and, and we are hopeless and powerless to do anything about that. No, I'm, I'm not a fatalist. I, I don't believe that, you know... Uh, I won't die until there's a bullet with my name on it, you know, comes along. But uh, I, I do believe my time is in, in God's hands. But what, what David is saying here is that this doesn't have to be because he, he says in verse 7, In my distress, in my hopelessness, I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice. And my cry for help came to his ears. And the implication is, of course, he not only heard, 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 but he acted. We don't need to be afraid of any of the issues of life or death because God is with us and he will, he will deliver us. And I think we ended up last week with this uh, statement, which is to me so profound, uh, where Jesus was hanging on the cross between the two thieves and the one thief said to Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, yes, the commentators will start, you know, dealing with what does he mean by today? You know, does he mean today? Or, or does he mean in some other kind of today? Or, hey, <laughs> he meant today, whatever. That is going to mean when this man died, he went with the Lord. And that is our hope. And that is our knowledge in Christ. Today, when that day is for us, we will be with him in paradise. Well, let's look on in, the, uh, in this chapter beginning at verse 8, the next uh, section here. Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling, were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. And he rode on a cherub and flew. 
and he appeared on the wings of the wind, and he made darkness canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. When the channels of the sea appeared, the foundations of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord, by the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And he sent from on high, and he took, and he delivered, and he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also rescued me, uh, he also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Does the Lord delight in us because we're so wonderful? Hmm. This passage, I believe, graphically portrays what happens in the spiritual realm when God's people cry out to Him. When we call upon His name, what does God do? We have a description of what Satan and his minions see when God moves to defend His people. You can imagine if, if you're uh, in Iraqi with your AK-47, you're standing out on the street here and you want to defend Baghdad and on down comes the street runs, comes rumbling a bunch of Abrams tanks. If you're smart, you're scared to death. Well, Satan is far more scared to death because of the power of God when, when, when God moves. This, this picture that we read here is both frightening and wonderful. It's truly awesome. <laughs> that poor word has been abused to the point where it's lost much of its meaning today, you know. Awesome. Um, if everything is as awesome as, as everybody claims it is, then there isn't much left mundane <laughs> in this world. There's only one person who's awesome, and that is God. He's the only one who fills us with awe. Everything else is uh, mundane in comparison. Can you imagine, you know, in the old westerns, the, 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 the wagon train is about ready to be overwhelmed by the attack of the, of the Indians, and all of a sudden you hear in the distance, boop, 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 you know, the cavalry comes charging uh, to the rescue of the, of the wagon train. But, but no cavalry charge, no military assault could begin to compare to the impact of God moving heaven and earth on behalf of His church. We don't see it, but that's what David is describing for us here, you know, the blast of his nostrils. Prayer is the most powerful spiritual weapon we have. Sometimes because we don't see any immediate fruit, uh, because things don't seem to change as quickly as we think they ought to change, we're discouraged. And sometimes people give up on prayer uh, simply because we don't see this picture that that David paints for us. It seems like things just keep going on the same way. But we have to believe that God is on the move. We read in the epistle of James that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There, there, are, there are times when I actually do prefer the King James in some of these things where it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Who's righteous? Scripture says there's none righteous but God. But, but we who have put our faith in Him 
and have confessed our sin to him have imputed righteousness. And that's what it's talking about here. Those who have received the imputed righteousness of Christ and are living within that imputed righteousness as, as they effectively pray can accomplish much. And then he goes on in, in James chapter 5 there. James goes on to illustrate what he meant. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying Elijah was just John Doe every man, you know? He, he was not some kind of super saint that should be up on a pedestal 12 feet high. He was just a normal kind of person. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three and a years and six months. And then he prayed again, the sky poured. Elijah prayed fervently, and Elijah prayed in accordance with the will of God. It was God's revealed will to Elijah to do this, and so he prayed, and God heard, and God literally changed the weather. As we've talked about before, if you, if you live in the, the CSA weather pattern, which is what we live here uh, in, in Cal much of California, not all of it, but much of it, at least Central California, uh, it's the same weather pattern that you have in Israel. And, and generally speaking, it will rain from mm, maybe late October, certainly by November, and you'll get reasonable rains all the way until uh, March, uh, April maybe, occasionally in May, but you can pretty much count on most of May, June, July, August, and most of September being dry. But generally you'll have rain in the so-called winter time. It's, it's a you know, win winter rain phenomena. Most of you may not realize, especially if you're native Californians, that that's a very unusual weather pattern. Most of the world, most of the rain falls in the summer, not in the winter. But here it, it falls predominantly winter as it, as it does here. And so for it not to rain for three and a half years meant that God had, to in, God had to set aside the normal weather pattern, the normal movement of those great cyclonic low pressure cells that come out of the Icelandic low and sweep into Europe and down into the Mediterranean. He had to push them north or whatever he did with them uh, so that they didn't come to Israel in order to fulfill the prayer of Elijah. That's moving heaven and earth, isn't it? And, and of course, Elijah didn't pray this prayer just for some simplistic idea. Oh, you know, I'm really mad at this guy, so Lord, we... No, it had to do with transforming a nation. Similarly, God answered prayer of the guy we usually mix up with Elijah, and that's Elisha. Let me read from 2 Kings chapter 6. When uh, God answered this guy's prayer rather dramatically. In 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, reading at vif, uh, verse 15, Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he, that is Elisha, answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Then when, he, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike these people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. <laughs> and who was Elisha? Was Elisha? A man who should be on a pedestal? No. He was no greater than Elijah. He was just a man 
who was available to God to be his prophet and to believe God and to pray. And, and, and so God heard these prayers of these men and did mighty things, literally changing the course of nations. True biblical prayer is warfare. It isn't what the deist used to believe, you know, that it was just flowery speech. Now pray a pretty prayer for us. Not that it matters. It's just going to bounce off the ceiling anyway because God's off worrying about Alpha Centauri or something. He's not paying attention to us over here, you know. It's warfare. True. That, that's why prayer is hard. I mean, real prayer is hard. And, and often we don't look forward to it. Don't look forward to really our time of prayer because it's war. Real prayer is war. And war's not any fun. It's the commitment of ourselves to the advancement of the kingdom of God and to the defeat of the kingdom of darkness. We're soldiers in that battle. And, and just as in physical war, the better trained and disciplined we are, the more effective we are, right? I mean, they keep saying that our Marines and our soldiers over there, I mean, we were listening, I was listening last night to a ranger who was in the Black Hawk Down fiasco in Mogadishu. And he was saying that at the time that it happened, we were the best trained soldiers in the world. And he says, the guys over there today are 10 times better trained than we are and better equipped. I don't know if it's literally 10 times, but that's what he said. Obviously, the better trained and better equipped you are, the, the better able you are to, to be a soldier in battle. And so it is in, in the warfare, in, in spiritual warfare. Uh, we must learn how to pray effectively. It just doesn't come automatically. And just because we sit down and pray a prayer doesn't mean it's an effective prayer. We need to learn to submit ourselves to the authority of our commander-in-chief. It is the Lord who brings the victory. That's what this whole psalm's about. The Lord gives deliverance. And so, you know, we, we want to be trained and equipped and effective, but it is He who works through us that, that brings the ultimate victory and the success of our prayers. In James 4, chapter 7, I'm sorry, <laughs> chapter 4, verse 7, we read, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. The devil will flee from us. That's kind of like David walking up to Goliath and saying, boo. And Goliath goes, you know, runs off over the hill. You know. It isn't by our power. It's by the power of the Lord, the Spirit of God who, who dwells within us that we can resist the devil and that he is forced to flee. Submission to God involves learning who he is. That's why the scripture is so important to us. How can we know who God is if we don't study the word of God? Or there are people out there who say, well, you know, I just walk through every day and God tells me who he is. Oh, well, I don't think I want to know this God you're talking to if the scripture is not how you're learning about his nature and, and, and who, he, who he really is. We not only need to learn his nature, but what is his will? Now, we, we pray for God's will to be known to us, and, and that's right that we do that. And we don't know the will of God in every little situation. You know, Lord, should I today, da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, you know, do some particular thing? We may not know exactly if that's what God wants us to do or not. But as we study the Scripture, we know in general what the will of God is. For one thing, we know, for example, He is not willing that any should perish. 
but that all should come to repentance. And so when we pray for the salvation of a soul, we know we're praying in the will of God. So we have to not only learn what his nature is and what his will is, but how to align our prayers with that revealed, revealed will so that we pray, can pray in faith. We can pray in faith if we know this is God's will. Now, now, you know, sometimes we don't know specifically about some little thing like, you know, this particular person has a particular illness and what, what is God going to do? But we, we can pray and, and ask God to, to give us the faith to believe for what He's going to do. We, we know in general that God will ultimately heal us all, right? <laughs> Once we pass over Chile, Jordan, we will all be totally well. But sometimes He actually intervenes in this life to minister to our physical need. In fact, he does it all the time, or else most of us wouldn't be here. In physical warfare, the larger the army, the more sure the victory. So it is in prayer warfare. The more people who agree together in prayer, the more powerful is the result. That's why it's important that we get prayer help for things. Now, there are, there are certain things, of course, that we need to pray for that we can't really share. Uh, with others maybe, or not very many, but most prayer requests or prayer needs can be <coughs> shared with others. As we noted last time when we read two weeks ago towards the end of the class time from Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 18 we read, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, beyond the alert, with all perseverance, and petition for all saints. Now, the key concepts in that particular verse are, first of all, being on the alert. That means we shouldn't walk through every day kind of rum-dum, you know, but, but alert to other people's needs, willing to hear other people say to us, look, I have this particular need, would you pray with me? And really doing it. Now, in this class, uh, we do have a prayer link which you can call in, and, and there are those who will pray for the need that you have, and, and many of you have used the prayer link. It, it is available for you. Just call our phone number, and, and it's automated, so everybody receives exactly the same prayer. It's not a prayer chain, you know, where you call somebody, and they call somebody, and they call somebody kind of deal. It's, it's, it's a computer that calls everybody with the message and gives the same message. And, and you're all welcome to use that. And if any of you want to be on it and aren't, you're, you're welcome to join. We, we have this wall here of, of missionaries, and we post the emails so that we'll be aware of the, of the needs. We pass around the emails in class because these are people alerting us to their needs. They're saying, please pray for us. And, and this gives us opportunity to join forces in that prayer. And we share in this class our prayer needs, and, and we pray for them. And, I hope the prayer isn't only the prayer that's prayed here in this class, but also we take it home in our hearts and remember to pray. And being prepared to pray at all times, this is another concept in this, in this, this passage. What that means is keeping short accounts with God. You know, if you've just blown your top at somebody, you know, you, you kind of need to go before the Lord and get that straightened out before your prayer is going to have much meaning or any, any effectiveness at all. You, know, you can't go to prayer for somebody if you've got rancor in your heart or some other form of sin. And so we just have to keep whipping out, you know, 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. I, you know, seriously, honestly and, and uh, seriously pray that prayer, not, not flippantly, of course. And uh, then we can be prayed, uh, prepared to uh, pray. Thirdly, in this verse, we find the concept of praying in the power and the will of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, there's no point in praying. If it isn't in the power and the will of the Holy Spirit, it's just so much hot air. Perseverance in prayer. That's the hard thing, isn't it? After we prayed, and we've prayed, and six months later we prayed again, and nothing seems to be happening. We think, well, you know, maybe uh, whatever. You know, God isn't hearing us. Uh, God is tired of hearing us. Uh, God is saying no. Well, God does say no. But usually he convinces us in our heart when that's so. Making a commitment to being a praying person is an important thing. We're just not automatically praying people just because we're Christians. I, I know for me it took a long time to really see that prayer was important. It took a lot of hard things uh, to happen before I saw prayer as really, really crucial. It's how, it's how God chooses to work is through prayer. And even today, my first reaction isn't always to pray about something. It's to say, well, how can I figure out how to do this, you know? Fifthly, focusing prayer on the saints. It says in the passage in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, to offer prayer for the saints. We are the family of God. We are to pray for one another. You know, Paul uses the analogy of the body and how the cells in the body support one another. And we better know today how that works than they could have possibly known in, in, in David's day or Paul's day about the, um, how the body heals itself. And, and one part of the body supports other parts of the body and the body is all at work trying to rescue its injured parts. And that's what we are to be as the family of God. We need to pray for each other. If nothing else, effective prayer first depends on cleanness of heart. That's why David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then it also depends on sincerity. We can't pray flippantly or just, you know, whip out a prayer. Persistence, again, the hard part, hang in there. Faith, patience. Patience and persistence kind of go together, don't they? <laughs> I, I think the thing for us to constantly remember is that God cares more about the problem than we do. And so we know he's going to act. How he's going to act and when he's going to act, those are the, the issues that sometimes discourage us. Well, the result of such prayer that David prayed is when he, when he says, deliver me, O Lord, is seen in this, this passage which we just read beginning at verse 8. And I think we have to understand this vision as allegorical. David is not saying that God is a great fire-breathing dragon tromping down through space, you know, to crunch his enemies. When he says that the blast of the breath of his nostrils, does God have nostrils? No, not as we normally think of them. Sure, Jesus is in a physical body. But it's, it's a colorful description of the omnipotence of God. What we read about is earthquake and thunder and lightning and fire and storm. 
hurricane, raging sea. These are, they're all depicted here in this passage, and, and these are used as, as metaphors for God, for His omnipotence, for His power. So in David's view, God would literally move heaven and earth, answer his prayer to deliver him from his enemies who were too strong for him. See, David was willing to admit that his enemies are too strong. Sometimes we're not that willing. I can do it. I can do it. Like the little engine, you know, that th I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. We should. No, we can't. No, we can't. No, we can't. <laughs> but God can. God can. God can. And God will, will deliver us. Even though the lion, the bear, Saul, Goliath, the armies of the Philistines and other enemies of Israel confronted him, the Lord delivered him out of them all. With his bare hands, God enabled David. Was, was David, you know, seven foot six, 300 pound behemoth? Well, Michelangelo sort of painted him or <laughs> carved him that way, maybe. But no, I think he was a pretty average-sized guy. Most average-sized guys just really don't want to go one-on-one -on -one with a bear, unless you're David Crockett, uh, or with a lion. But, but David, even as a young man, he's probably a teenager when he took on those tasks, was given victory, and he says, and he admits, through the power of the Lord. And even when he slew Goliath, he was still relatively young, you know, 20, 21, somewhere around in there, probably. And, and uh, Goliath, I mean, there just was no match there. And yet God gave him victory with an economy of effort, you know, one stone. <laughs> Verse 20 of this um, passage concludes this violent passage with a peaceful, a beautiful picture Halcyon picture. He brought, also brought me forth into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now that's encouraging because it means we're not always standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath 24-7. Because that's real discouraging even if the Lord is our deliverer. That's tiresome. Sometimes I think we feel like we've been 24-7 <laughs> standing with Goliath. T to me the picture is this. Here is this, this river crashing down through a gorge, roaring and splashing and crunching as it goes down. And then it comes, suddenly comes out onto the broad, flat plain where it becomes a placid, smoothly flowing river flowing in the broad valley. There are those times where God brings us to this place of peace. Ultimately, yes, in heaven we will all be sailing on those flowery beds of ease, I suppose you could say. But... But he gives us those times of calm and, and peace here and now, too. Sometimes we don't let him, however, because we take on too much and, and just drive ourselves. But, but God's desire is to free us from bondage and oppression and to help us to keep from putting our own oppression, oppressing ourselves by taking on those things that he hasn't asked us to do. So we have to be wise uh, in him. Well, let me read the next portion of the psalm. We won't be able to spend time with it today, but let me read it so it'll be in our thoughts. Beginning at verse 21 of 2 Samuel 22, 
The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless towards him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, my cleanness before his eyes. <coughs> With the kind you show yourself kind. With the blameless you show yourself blameless. With the pure you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute. And you save an, an afflicted people, but your eyes are on the haughty whom you abase. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? Who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress. He sets the blameless in his way. He makes his feet like hinds feet and sets me on a high place. He trains my hands for battle so that my arm may bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. I realize that as we read this passage, especially the first part of it, it sounds like David is going, ha, I'm blameless, therefore God works with me. But that is not what he's saying. Because David well knows that he has made an ass of himself on numerous occasions. And, and so what he is saying here is that because God has purified me, in his righteousness, I stand blameless. And therefore, he hears my prayer and works through me. And that will be, uh, we'll focus on that as we look at that passage next week. <clears throat>